In the following live session recording, Stuart Lang, state missionary with Community Missions and Disaster Response for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about Mission Connect. In this session, the listener will learn about a practical approach to developing a missional strategy for the local church, hear about available resources, and explore opportunities for connecting with missional partners. Let's join Stuart now. So my name is Stuart Lang. Um, I've been with the convention almost 13 years now. Was a pastor before that in North Georgia and South Carolina. Uh, pastored about 16 years before going to the convention. And um, back in 2012, we had um, the the 08 recession. Uh, you know, ripple effect got to the convention and hurt us, and we had like three different layoffs. And after that third layoff, some assignments were reshuffled. Mission partnerships came to me, and so I realized I've always had disaster relief hat and still have that. But when they gave me the missions hat in 2012, I realized I need some tools that I don't have. I need some, just missing some in my tool belt. So I went back to school and uh, worked on a D-man, trying to focus on missions so that I could be of better use to churches help. And I came across this word missional, and it was a new word for me. It, I hope it's not a new word for you, but it was a new word for me at the time. And it's a very wonderful word, but we need to be careful who defines it and how we define it. And so we're gonna go through my definition now. Uh, Note takers thrill a preacher's heart, but let me tell you, I'll, I've got this in a PDF, PDF format. I'll be happy to send it to you. So if you want, if you want this, it's yours. Uh, and I send it in PDF because that's a smaller file. If I send it as a PowerPoint, a lot of times it's too big for an email. So um, originally, like I said, we were going to do a panel discussion, and I was going to try to get Beth Ann Williams, who's WMU and uh, Bill Barker and Ricky Thrasher and Clarissa Williams is in Baptist Collegiate Ministries and she does a lot with student mission teams and we were going to do a panel discussion and with all of the changes going on and um, I reverted back to this so some of this is from my doctorate some of this is since then but I wanted to share this with you and then uh, try to challenge you a little bit on missions in your church regardless of your position. So is it time for a new missional paradigm? I think the answer is yes for many of our churches, not necessarily for your church, but for many of our churches, I think we it's time to look at a new paradigm. So let me, just a little more history. I grew up strong Southern Baptist. My dad was my pastor, uh, strong Southern Baptist, Mom and dad were both born in 1928. We're fixing to get into some generational demographics and that kind of thing. And they were of that greatest generation. Loyal, please don't be offended because there's nobody that I love more than my parents. So don't be offended when I talk about their generation some. I do it with all the respect that I can muster. They were loyal to a fault. And so if by, what I mean by that is if my dad is a pastor or director of missions, if he got a letter from Georgia Baptist Convention Mission Board that said, 
hey, we need you to consider giving an extra percentage point to the cooperative program or to Lottie Moon or to Annie Armstrong or to state missions or, or whatever, fill in the blank. They wouldn't have even prayed about it. It would have been, okay, let's do it. And so they gave and they prayed and thank God for that. But they gave blindly with this loyalty because it was inbred in them. It was part of their DNA. Well, now our culture is entirely different. And I'm going to spend a good many slides trying to prove to you that the culture of today's church is vastly different than it was 12 years ago when I started working at the convention. And it's going to be different yet 10 years from now than what it is now. And so if we don't rethink the way we approach missions, uh, we're, we're going to be dead in the water. Honestly, this is also going to have, in my opinion, this is going to play into your lifeblood as a local church because uh, we can't, in fact, I have a sermon that I preached a couple of times, it's not my daddy's church. If we keep trying to do church the way my dad did it when he started in ministry in the 50s, it's not going to work. And when I started full-time ministry in 1990, my dad, who was my hero, said, I would not want to be starting out in ministry if I were you today. That was 29 years ago. And so, I mean, can you imagine what he would say, what he would have said to my son if he were still alive when Caleb was ordained into the ministry a few years ago? I wonder what he would have said to Caleb at that point. It is just vastly different. So I can get into numbers. I, I don't want to bore you with this, but I do think it is worth looking at. So why? Why, am, why are we fixing to go? Come on in. Why are we fixing to go through a lot of... Uh, fire hose information. These these are some of my sources. The next slide is sources, but this is some of why. In 2013, John Dickerson wrote this book called The Great Evangelical Recession, and you can imagine that he is using that term because of the 2008 financial crisis recession that our country faced. And he identifies six areas of church life that are going to be facing a recession, and he also offers suggestions on what to do to overcome them. So I read the book because uh, it was came up in a book club that I was part of at the time, and I thought, oh my goodness! I mean, he's not he's not a doomsdayer. He is a realist, and he's trying to help churches prepare for this coming uh, evangelical recession, and it is happening. And then couple that with declining church attendance and participation. And you may be the except your church may be the exception, but the church across the board is declining in every in every category. Uh, so you, you said your church sixty? Yes, is that what you said? The church I pastored last before coming to the convention, we ran. 150 in worship, uh, 120 in Sunday school. It's easy for me, for a pastor like you, to say, but the mega church are growing. No, they're not. The megas are not flourishing either. The only category of churches that seems to be faring well is the large church, 300 to 500. 
that size. But across every category, most churches are plateaued or declining. We can't ignore that. And so I, I was on my way to a national meeting of state directors for disaster relief, and I had just finished this book, and I read the book thinking church, right? Church, 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 church. But I'm, on my, I'm, sit, I'm in the car riding with a friend to this meeting, and I think, oh, my word. The implications are just the same for disaster relief. Uh, my feeders, I have feeders that are going to feed you supper tonight and lunch tomorrow. It's going to be a great meal. I hope you thank them and hug them and high-five, whatever. But look at them. I want you to pay attention when you go through the line. And I want you to take a mental note of the average age of my DR volunteers. Downstairs, the average age is probably 70, at least 65. And so as I read this book by Dickerson, I'm thinking his prognoses are going to affect disaster relief. And it, it thrust us into a long-term study. Um, and, and we have tried to we are in the process of trying to reinvent some of the ways we do approach disaster relief. We're not going to change what we do, but we're, we've got to be smarter about how we bring more people into disaster relief and engage people, and how we keep people coming even after they are no longer able to run a chainsaw. So keeping volunteers is also an issue. Now, when I was a pastor, uh, northeast Georgia, and we would talk, I'm talking early 90s, in mid 90s so when we would have the conversation why, why are our numbers going down or why can't we get so-and-so to come or why can't we get more young adults to come the common answer was well they just need to be more committed tell me how's that working out for you so that statement is not an answer That statement is a indicator of where we are, but it is not an answer. And so if I look at young adults and say, y'all just need to be more committed. Uh, if, if, listen, if they're coming to Sunday morning service two times a month, they are probably more committed than most of the people in their generation. So just to throw this out is really, uh, not sufficient. So why am I going through all this? Love this verse from Chronicles. Of uh, the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. They understood the times and they knew what they needed to do. I'm going to paint a picture for you, broad brush, of what the times look like. Now this is not specific to your community. If you want that for your community, I can come do that for you and your community. But this is, this is broad brush, okay, across the board. And the question is, how are we prayerfully going to ask God to give us an understanding of what to do with what the times are? Because that's the million dollar question, right? So we need to try to answer that. Here are some other sources. I've already mentioned John Dickerson's book. I keep trying to cross my arms in this. Uh, is in the way. Gary Bully wrote a, a white paper called Ministry in the New Reality. Amy Hansen, this is a great book. Uh, Amy Hansen's 
uh, book, Baby Boomers and Beyond Tapping Minister Talents and Passions of Adults Over 50. She's got some tremendous insights into that book about uh, an, a very explosive generation. And when you, when you come down to her age span of over 50, when you, when you start, I'm 54, so when you start talking my age and up, we are the largest generation in, in America right now. If you put those two or three together, uh, 55 and up is the largest segment of our culture right now. That means there are more in my 55 up, there are more lost in the retired age span than any other generation. So don't think for a skinny second that gray hair equals salvation. It never has and it still does not. And we, t we like to think everybody knows millennials are the largest generation. That's true, but when you take the silence and the builders and busters and put us together, there are more of us than there are millennials. And by sheer percentages, there are more lost than there are even of the, among the millennials. So let's look at some generational trends. Nearly 1,000 builders and or silence die every day. When you put the builders and the silence together, they make up what the next point calls matures, M-A-T-U-R-E-S. The matures will be gone in nine to 10 years. Here's the problem. Uh, I created this PowerPoint the first time two years ago. So just to hold out all sense of optimism I can, the matures are going to be gone in seven to ten years. Does that mean they're going to all be deceased? Not necessarily. But I do think for all practical intent purposes, they are going to be gone from activity, attendance, participation in the local church in the next seven to ten years. Those age 85 and older, that age span is expected to increase from 5.7 million in 2010 to 6.6 .6 million in 2020. Those statements do not contradict each other because the, and I get the builders and the silence mixed up. I think it was the builders who came first and then the silence came after them. So what this is saying is the silence are, are going, I mean the builders are going to be gone before the silence are. And, but put together, we're gonna to be losing a tremendous workforce, giving force, attending force, believing force in the next few years. Boomers will be providing for their aging parents. I've already gone through this. So five years ago, my wife, Tanya, and I had four parents. Today we have one. And my parents died within five weeks of each other. So I, they, were, they were in assisted living, but I became caretaker for them. And we still had a daughter who was in college who came home and visited and stayed with us just about every weekend. So we were the proverbial sandwich generation there for a while. 10,000 boomers retire every day. Most are not as well prepared financially as they hoped. Now the silence, they were prepared for retirement. Silence um, are, actually, I think the silence came first. So the builders were born between 
nine, builders were born up until 1940 through 1945, so 25 to 45. And then the boomers were born 1946 to 1964. I can remember that one because I was born in 1965. So builders, or excuse me, boomers, let me start with what I remember. Uh, and then I'm the oldest of the busters. And I actually remember chalkboards in school. 1965 to 80. And then you have the millennials. 1982. It depends on who you ask. It may be 95, it may be 2000. And then you have Generation X which would be 1995, um, I want to say 2010 or thereabouts. And we're not even going to get into X or Z, but 20, Generation Z is around 2010. Now, before I forget, since you brought it up, it's your fault, uh, there is there is great hope with generations X and Z. Um, even some of the millennials, so typically your millennials were born to busters and, and younger boomers. And so a lot of the millennials saw parents who failed and they have a natural affinity to the builders, grandparent age. That is more so true of X, but I'm, we're, we're just now starting to hear about Generation Z. X is more conservative than the millennials. I just read an article that uh, Generation X still actually shops in stores. They, they're, they're okay to do online shopping, but they still want to go to a hard store to do some shopping along the way. And that is not nearly as true of the millennials. So 10,000 boomers retire every day, but they're not prepared financially to do so. In 1995, the average age of retirement was 62. Now, we're not talking about that many years ago. 13 years ago, 14 years ago, the average age of people retiring was 62. In 2014, it had gone up to age 64. In 2012, when people were asked in 2012, at what age do you expect to retire? The answer was 67. So let's just do a poll. How many of you are retired? One, two, three, four, five. Uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody did, by asking how old were you when you retired. If you don't want to answer, don't. But First time 52, second time 63. 63, okay. 64. 56. 64. 59 and a half. <laughs> 64. 64. Did anybody else retire to go into another career? Yeah. I retired once and then I went back to work. Okay. Same career. Okay. 
This is, this is what's coming, and we're fixing to see that on the uh, slide. Boomers are retiring, but they're going into a second career. Now, of those of us who have not yet retired, at what age do you expect to retire? I don't expect to. You don't expect to. This is a growing answer. That's what I tell my wife. <laughs> at the age of 200? <laughs> Brought to ruck with that, bro. I don't expect to retire. So, at 60. So, I, I've already told you, I'm the youngest of the busters. I, I just turned 54. I hope that I can retire around 67 or 68. That's, that, that's my long-term goal. Uh, but, I also want to follow, repeat my dad's pattern Dad retired three or four times, and every time he retired, it was to take another church as an interim pastor. I would love to do that, if that's even still a thing, 13, 14 years from now, and I don't know. Life expectancy has also increased dramatically. In 1900, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? The life expectancy in 1900 was only 47. 1935, in 35 years, it had jumped 15 years. In 2014, the life expectancy was 79, and by 2050, the life expectancy will be 84 and a half years old. So we're living longer, which means we're going to work longer, because if we don't work longer, an aging, retired generation puts increased burden on the working age. The increase in boomers was due to post-World War II birth rates. Y'all understand that, right? The increase in millennials is due to immigration. Now, let me just stop for a second. This is a, core, this is a breakout on missions. Tell me what you see impacting missions about this one slide. Multi-ethnic. Multicultural. As long as our increase was primarily due to birth rate, that meant we stayed, what, what's it, uh, home, uh, uh, homeostasis, what, where, where you have homogeneous. The homogeneous factor was in place because primarily European background families are having European background babies who are having European background babies and so and so and so on and, and so our our normal stayed consistent but millennials are greatly diverse but the millennials are not nearly as diverse as Generation X and Generation X is not as diverse as Generation Z and so generations X and Z who already have smartphones and know how to do them better than you and I do, they have friends via technology that can live anywhere in the world. And they don't think a second thought about it. There were three, there have been three primary immigration waves. Going way back, 1840 to 99, 89% European, 
1890 to 1919, 88% European. The third wave, however, though, started the year I was born, 1965. It is continuing. Just listen to the news. It is continuing, and it is only 12% European. 50% Latin America, 27% Southeast Asia. This is changing the dynamics in every community in Georgia. So we've got to rethink our approach to everything church, especially missions. The percentage attending and believing trends, the percentage of Americans who attend, this is census data. Well, the builders attend at a rate of 40%. So 40% of builders attend church. I think it would be higher, but the, a lot of the builders are in nursing homes and assisted living now. 35% of boomers attend. And by the way, uh, Amy, was it Hanson, whose book I read, she says this is a great evangelical field right now because boomers, keep in mind, we're talking age 55. I'm the oldest of the busters. I'm 54. So right now, starting age 55 and going up almost 40, almost 20 years, so 55 to 75, that is a great evangelical field right now. Why? Because even those boomers who uh, said no to church or possibly were not raised in church, they're burying their parents they're also losing a lot of friends, and so the, I, the sense of mortality is becoming real to them. And so some of these, not all, but many boomers uh, were not serious about the Lord and church growing up, or, and I have a theory here, I think a lot of our boomers wanted to bring their music and their bell-bottom jeans into church, but their parents said no. And when the parents said no, they said fine. They backed out and they started raising children not in church. Grandparents could take them if they wanted to, but they weren't going to have anything to do with it. Well, now they're at an age where they're starting to lose a lot of friends, they're losing siblings, they're lose, they've lost or are losing parents, and so the reality of their own mortality is creating within them a sense of openness to the gospel that they may not have had before. So we're all about next gen. In the process of next gen, don't forget your current boomers. You may have an opportunity to reach them. Uh, Tom Rayner, now what's sad to me is when you go to Gen X, do I have that backwards? I, I'm sorry, I, I told you wrong. After y'all made your notes. I am Gen X. We don't know what these are called yet. See, you threw me off, you asked one question, and it, so, so 
Busters are Generation X. We attend at half the rate of the boomers. And the millennials at half the rate of Generation X. This is sad. This is why we've got to focus on next gen. Now Tom Rainer, he doesn't just go by the census. He identifies people as genuinely Christian. And, and when, you, when you're talking about genuinely Christian builders, the percentage goes up. It's interesting, it does not go up for boomers. But it does go up for these two categories. Now, Paul, you've been there how long? 13 years. 13 years ago, what would you have said was the metric for determining regular attendance? At least three Sundays a month. At least three Sundays a month. 20 years ago, uh, let me, 25 to 30 years ago, regular attendance for me would have meant Sunday school and Sunday morning service and at least Sunday night or Wednesday night. Weekly. And if you were gone, it was the exception, it was vacation. But those were my regular attenders. Regular attender now, don't quote me, but I believe it is one service a month. And, and I do know this, regular attendance is based on the worship service, not Sunday school. Or groups or whatever you call it, and I don't care what you call it. Do it, I don't care what you call it. So regular attendance is based on worship service attendance, not your small group attendance. I know for a fact that metric has changed. Giving and financial trends. Every generation gives less than the previous generation. Builders provide 46% of the budgets, church budgets. This one's, the, it, if you're half asleep, either go all the way or wake all the way up. This, this is going to hit between the eyes. 68% of money given to churches is given by people ages 55 and over. That's the boomers and the builders. And at this point, the silence are pretty well beyond the ability to give. So this, so the day of, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying unless you, it becomes the DNA of your church and, and unless you are really discipling younger generations in biblical stewardship, the day of just passing the hat saying, hey, we need to raise $10,000 to send 20 people on a mission trip to so-and-so. That's not gonna happen like it would have happened 10 years ago, even. Folks over 75 give four times as much of their income as those aged 25 to 44. And we're talking percentage, I believe. 17, this is, this is just funny to me, in a sad, sad way. 17% of Christians claim to tithe, but only 3% give 10% or more. That means 14% don't know what tithe means. At age 35, today's 75-year-old was far more generous than today's 35-year-old. And 40 years ago, 
that said that then 35 year old wasn't making near the salary that today's 35 year old is making do, I, do you even want me to read that first one out loud Feel that way every day. <laughs> At age, a 65-year-old couple can expect to spend almost a quarter of a million dollars in health-related mm -hmm. expenses in the remainder of their life. Now, I, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying reality question. For, and and don't even think yourself in the room for people in your church. When the decision comes down to tithe or my medicine, most are going to choose their medicine. Are you starting to see some of the gravity of where I'm now, giving may drop by 75% during the next 25 to 30 years. So, unless you are just convinced of the Lord, you need that new building. I'd be careful. And if you do build, I would build something that you can sell. And I would build something that is multi-use and I would make sure the community gets to use it. Because you're gonna need the community to buy in to your building if you do that. 76% of boomers want to retire around age 64 and launch into a new job career. Boomers are more, the good, good news, good news. Boomers are more interested in volunteering than we thought they were. However, they want to do it on their terms. In 2006, more than half of age 55 and older were interested in volunteering, but flexibility on their own terms, short commitments centered around special events and service opportunities that have a mission. Now, take your spiritual hat off. Take your spiritual Sunday school hat off. Set it in the seat beside you. Answer me this question. Can you think of a mission in your community that boomers may get excited about helping with, whether they're in your church or not? What would it, what is it? Um, a food pantry. Food pantry. Homeless shelter. Homeless shelter. Building ramps for handicapped. Ramps for handicapped. Why? It's tangible. Something else. Come on. No spiritual. Forget the spiritual. Name a mission for me that younger boomers could get in your community could get excited about doing. Y'all are going to laugh when I come out with. So I got a good friend. His name is Jonathan. He was on staff. He's now at a church in Douglas. Please don't be offended by my terminology. I am not a tree hugger. I'm okay with recycling, 
but I don't go overboard. I'm with it. Whatever overboard would look like, I don't know. But I'm not. I'm not. I don't. I don't cry when trees come down. I. I'm not that person. Jonathan's not either, but he's closer to it than I am. And we were at, in the break room one day at work, and he said, Stuart, you know where churches are missing it? I said, what's that? He said, they ought to help clean up the river. I said, what? What? What are you talking about? He said, we're missing a golden opportunity. Because there are tree hugger, green people who love anything to do with taking care of nature. Now here's his point. What if your church adopted one mile of your closest river and one Saturday a month you sponsored a cleanup day for the river, but you opened it up to the entire community. Hey, Elam Baptist Church is going to have a river cleanup day. We're going to provide hot dogs for everybody that will come, but we want the entire community to come. You got a river too. Or a side of the road. It, or if you're up on Appalachia Trail, a portion of the trail. How would you invite the community? Facebook. That's probably the best way there is right now. Facebook. And get your younger people to do it on Twitter. Yeah. Get these folks, tell them what you want to do. Now that's a mission. Is it a gospel mission? Well, that's up to you what you make of it. Does that make sense? Now I'm throwing that one idea out and I'm asking you to run with it. But if you want to get, if you want to get this age involved, you've got to give them something they can sink their teeth into. Now they like the wheelchair ramps because it's a one day project and when they finish, they can look back and they can see what they've done. Flood buckets are another thing. It's tangible. Here's what I'm saying. Don't stifle your thinking to money only. That's something we started this year was, uh, and it wasn't, it's going to grow. But every community has a some type of festival that they do. And uh, we had people out evangelizing during that, but we're trying to get a, a picture booth. To, you know, out over the river and all that type of stuff and just have people, you know, out there saying, hey, let me take your picture. Let me show you, share the gospel. I mean, we had some of our older people that got involved with that yeah. this year just being out during the festival. And every little town in Georgia has a festival. Every little town. <laughs> now, we we were working on it last year. We didn't get one up, but I, I walked around the river walk and people are trying to take selfies. I'm like, hey, can I take that picture for you? And then say, I'm Pastor First Baptist Woodbine and talk to him like that. So, yep. I mean, it, it was. That's the way we've got to think. Now, if you're going to provide the camera, I would say do a Polaroid type camera. Because if it's digital, they're going to wonder what you're doing with their picture. Right. That's so, even, even when you do a mission, you've got to be smart 
about their sensitivity. So what? And all of this is preparatory for the missional strategy I'm going to present to you. We're losing our most supportive base. There are fewer willing and available participants. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you. That's reality. And if we don't do something to turn the tide, it's going to continue. Those who want to volunteer do so on their own terms. There are many other options, and we are less loyal to traditions than ever before. So let me explain that one. My dad got me involved in disaster relief in 1998, and we were the biggest thing going, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. We're not anymore, and we are by no means the only big thing going. Forget American Red Cross and the Salvation Army. They've always been doing disaster relief. You now have Operation Blessing, Convoy of Hope, Samaritan's Purse, Team Rubicon, and a host of other organizations doing disaster relief. And many of them are non-faith-based or they are non-denominational faith-based, which gives them a national audience on radio stations like K-Love. And K-Love, even though it's a Christian radio station, they would prefer... I'm, I'm filling in the blanks here a little bit. I think they would prefer to promote a non-denominational faith-based group rather than Southern Baptist because if they promote Southern Baptist, then they have just identified themselves with Southern Baptist and they really don't want to do that. So if they can identify with Samaritan's Purse or Convoy of Hope, then they're safe. They're not going to lose their base by <coughs> identifying with us. So that's what I mean by the vice point. And the people in your churches have many more options than they've ever had before. They don't have to go with your church anymore. When my dad started pastoring, the church was the center of the community. You can go into many communities and they don't even know where your church is anymore. So, is it time to consider a new missional paradigm? I hope you'll agree with me that yes is the answer. Here's the overview of what we're going to do. Missional versus missio dei. Missional is practice. What does it look like? Missio dei, I will define it for you, but it is a Latin phrase that stands for the mission of God, and I'll unpack that more for you. So, missional is practice. Missio dei is theology. Missional and these are my definitions, so missional is what does it look like, Missio Dei, why does it matter? And I think both of those questions are very important. So missional, it is not the same as mission-minded. It is not only giving to and praying for missions. Now I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to discourage you from doing that. I hope you never stop giving to and praying for missions. But we can't stop with that only. <clears throat> I have nothing against the church trying to be attractional as long as you don't water down the gospel. But missional is not just attractional. 
And missional does not just mean taking a mission trip every year. It's more than that. David Mills is pastor of Beach Haven Baptist Church, Athens, Georgia. And he, I heard him say this and I've been quoting him. I did tell him that I would do so. Our church will never sacrifice our support of career missionaries for the sake of short-term mission trips. So Beach Haven goes on a lot of mission trips every year. What he's saying is, we're, ne we're not gonna take money out of cooperative program or out of Lottie or out of Annie to fund our church mission trips. We're not going to sacrifice support of our personnel in the field. And I say kudos. Growing up strong Southern Baptist, I never felt like the International Mission Board at the time, growing up it was the Ford Mission Board, I never felt that they were something other than me. I felt they were an extension of my church. And because I was Southern Baptist, because I put my offering in the plate, because my dad was strong Southern Baptist and believed in the cooperative program and all those special ladies offerings, then missionaries were able to go to places where I would never be able to go. I never saw them as something different. I saw them, they were part of our church wherever they were, whoever they were. And I'm telling you, I don't think that mindset exists like that across the board anymore. A missional church is a church that acts like a missionary in its community. So there's our very basic definition. Now growing up, RAs and Sunday school and hearing all the stories and believing them from before I was ever born, I never caught this. I heard I was supposed to be a good Christian. I was supposed to share my faith. I was supposed to tithe, read my Bible, and pray every day. I never caught that I was a missionary. That's why I tithed, so that the real missionaries could go to Africa. And that's false. Here's my definition that I came up with for my D-Man project. That one was for a church. This one is for me as an individual. A missional believer is one who lives an authentic life of faith. And that's boldened on purpose. One, one reason our churches are anemic is because we have church members instead of disciples. We have people who felt it was a moral civic obligation to join a church but they never joined Christ. We have people who thought they were securing a spot in heaven when they died, but they never had any intention of living a transformed life. We cannot and will not be missional if we are not allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to transform us from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. A missional believer is one who lives an authentic life of faith in covenant with a local church. There's no place in the kingdom of God for rogues. We need community of faith and seeks to intentionally engage his or her community with the gospel of Christ as if he or she were a missionary living in a different culture. And I'm telling you, you are now living in a different culture. But my neighbors are white like I am. My neighbors speak English like I do. 
My neighbor's children and grandchildren go to school with my children and grandchildren. We all shop at the same Walmart or Publix or wherever you go shop. <coughs> not what I'm talking about. Their worldview is not steeped in a Judeo-Christian worldview like your worldview is. It is a different culture. Here are some key concepts of this word missional. There is an emphasis on the community of faith. There is not the emphasis on church as an institution. Do you understand the difference? Because most of our churches don't. I'm not, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here. I'm telling you, I, I think this is the reason we have too many churches dying on the vine. The institution can be defined by brick and mortar, and it can be defined by the patriarchal, matriarchal family within the church. The institution can be defined by budget and calendar and traditions. But a community of faith is organic. A community of faith has a bond stronger than blood. A community of faith, if you, if you are part of a church that is a true community of faith, the Lord could send a tornado and completely decimate your campus and you would still have joy in the Lord because of who you are in Him, not because of the structure where you meet. And I'm telling you, this, this, this generation is anti-institution. A good many of these are as this. Missional has a kingdom focus. Them, it's not all about us. Them. What about my schoolmates who aren't coming? What about my other soccer moms who aren't coming? Missional realigns our focus to where we begin to think about others. Instead of, I don't like this chair. It doesn't support my back very well. Or who set the temperature in the sanctuary today? You don't want me to set the temperature. But as long as we keep focused, when we focus on us, we lose the concept that it's about other people. When I was growing up, the emphasis was on going to church. Yes? And the more often you went, the more spiritual and godly you were. <laughs> we learn, as white folk, learn from our black brothers and sisters that when they went to church they seemed to enjoy it a whole lot more than we did because they did church so there was an emphasis for a while on doing church and I think we need to go a step beyond that and start thinking about being the church not just going not just doing but being the church and I am convinced that every member 
is supposed to be a missionary. Ed Stetzer, the church is one of the few organizations in the world that does not exist for its members. The church exists because God chose the church as his instrument to make known his manifold wisdom in the world. Your church does not exist to perpetuate the cemetery fund. If your church is not sharing Jesus with people and seeing people come in and disciple them in their faith, you're not a church. You're a social club. You're a chapel, a family chapel. Miss Day translated the mission of God. Let me, can I just give you one very quick practical reason why I like the word missional? It is an adjective. Y'all like Y'all remember your parts of speech? Missions is a noun. Mission is a noun. Missional is an adjective. So for us to say we are on mission for God, we, we have to take a noun and put it with another word to make it an adjectival phrase. I like missional because it's an adjective to start with, and it ought to be a good word, part of speech, to describe who we are. There's your English lesson for the day. God has been on a mission of redemption throughout history. He invites and expects us to join him in his mission. Have you ever thought about God being a missionary God, a missional God? I had not ever considered it until I started down this journey on my D-Men. But it makes sense. Christopher Wright is a peer with John Stott. So some of you preacher guys, you may have heard of John Stott, you may have not heard of Christopher Wright, but he is solid. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for the church as God has a church for his mission. Mission was not made for the church, the church was made for mission, God's mission. That is a tremendous statement. Now, you need a mission statement for your church. I'm not suggesting you don't. I am suggesting, how about adopting God's mission as the key ingredient for your mission statement? And His mission is the redemption of mankind. And honestly, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans what you put on paper if it's not in the DNA of your church. Here are some key concepts of Missio Day. Mission, singular, is God's redemptive plan. Missions, plural, are the many activities that we perform that should be aimed at accomplishing His singular mission. Mission trips. Mission education. Budget. Praying for missionaries, giving to the offerings, all of those are activities. But I would challenge you, if you are doing mission activities that are not focusing on the singular mission of God, you need to stop them. 
what do I mean? If you are if you are contributing financially or even volunteer labor to a ministry in your community, but you don't get any kind of accounting from that ministry as to what they're doing with your funds, and if they're not sharing the gospel and if they're not promoting the kingdom, you don't need to fund them. Now, I know it's easier for me to say that because I'm, I'm just the class leader. You're the one that has to go back and convince your deacons of that. But they're across the hall, so... How much money are we throwing? Let's talk mission trips for a second. There's a wonderful book written, When Helping Hurts. And I believe this example came from that book of an orphanage in Africa or perhaps South America. And every year the same church would send a mission team to the same orphanage to paint the orphanage. And the gringos would go back home we had a wonderful mission trip. Look at all the slides. We painted the school. It was so dirty when we got there. And what they didn't know is that two weeks before they came, the children were told to go out and get buckets of mud and throw them on the building because the white Americans were coming and they wanted to have something to do. Now, how many thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars were wasted in plane tickets and pain to keep doing a job that didn't need to keep being done so that we Americans would feel good about ourselves for the mission trip. Hopefully. Hopefully. But I do know that there has been a lot, too many times our mission trips are about us going rather than who we're going to help. God's mission, He is Himself on mission, and God sends. And I want to prove this to you uh, as we go through another couple of slides. So there are two, in my opinion, healthy churches in the New Testament, and they show, they demonstrated all five functions of the church. Pastors, y'all remember learning the five functions of the church when you went to school? Jerusalem and the church at Antioch, Syria displayed all five of those functions and I would say you need to be experiencing those five functions in your church if you want to be blessed of God. God sent Abram before he was ever Abraham. God sent a man named Abram in Genesis 12. God sent Isaiah. God sent Jeremiah. Did you know that God also sent Solomon? We don't think about Solomon as being all that much the man after God's own heart. That was his Father David, right? But after David died and Solomon was the king, he had this prayer time with the Lord and he was asking God for wisdom. And there was also that time when he was building the temple. And in the process of all of that taking place, God promised Solomon that when he built the temple, if they would stay true to God, then God would use their worship in that temple so that all the kingdoms of the world would know that He was God. Did you ever think about King Solomon being sent by Yahweh, God? John the Baptist was sent. God obviously sent His own begotten Son. God sent the Holy Spirit. 
And God sent us, in John 20, verse 21, one of the occurrences of the Great Commission, there is a key to a question I'm going to ask you in a minute. In John's version of the Great Commission, Jesus said, John 20, 21, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And Ed Stetzer says that with that one command, he not only commissioned his 11 disciples, he commissioned all his disciples throughout the millennia to follow. In my opinion, Stuart Lang's opinion, the concept of the Missio Dei is the missing ingredient. And if we could grasp this concept, it could potentially transform a missions program into a viable missional strategy. What would it look like? Well, first of all, this is what I think it needs to not look like. In this particular screen, and there's only five because that's all I know how to do on PowerPoint. <laughs> so I just filled in the blocks. Education, that's your Sunday school discipleship program. Music, choir, children's choir, whatever style of music you sing in church, and I don't care what style you sing. Your worship, uh, we could talk all day long here. Your youth, your children, and missions is one extra program in the circle of your church. In most churches, this is the diagram. I'm saying let's toss that diagram out and go with something like this so that if the Lord ever led me to be a pastor to go back in the pastor this would be my working model the mission of God is at the heart the hub of all we do and everything we do points back to the mission of God so when we talk Sunday school curriculum and when we ask a Sunday school class to consider starting a new class, which really means dividing. The reason we're asking them to divide and start a new class is because we need to reach more people for the mission of God. We need to, we need to promote the mission of God to more people, and we can't do it if we've maxed out the room. We need to start. That, that's my motive for what I do in Sunday school. This is my motive for the Bible studies we choose in discipleship. This is my motive for the speakers we have that come and speak to the ladies' ministry or the men's monthly barbecue breakfast. This is the motive and the driving factor for our music. Now there's a lot of good music out there from a lot of different genres. I really don't care what style of music your church prefers. I don't care. There's good music in every style. There's also bad music in every style. And just because it was mama's favorite doesn't mean we need to sing it on Sunday morning if it does not have Missio Dei substance. And our music ought to educate our attendees about the mission of God. Same with the whole worship service. So let's, let's talk about the offering for a second. What better opportunity 
to me, the offering is the invitation before the invitation, regardless of where you put it in the service. What better opportunity to, to pass a plate? And before you, you do that, you pray and say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give back to you. And as we give our tithes and offerings, we are symbolically giving ourselves back to you. And so, Lord, we're going to put our checks and our debit cards and our babies and car keys in the offering plate today. And as we do, we also pray you'll help us to be cognizant and sensitive to the opportunities you give us when we go to lunch today to be a witness to that server. And we're not going to complain if our chicken's not done. We're still going to give a good tip. So everything about the worship service is driven by and points people back to the mission of God. What about our youth and our children programs? What if from a very early age, we don't just tell them stories for the sake of knowledge, we tell them stories about Abram and Sarah and how God had a plan for their lives that fit into His mission. And having a son at the age of 90 and 100 was all about God fulfilling His mission in that couple's life. Now you can add more circles if you're better at PowerPoint, but you get those. Our budget needs to be driven by the mission of God, not, by what, not only by what we did last year. Our business meetings need to be driven by the mission of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go to a business meeting and celebrate what God has done in your church instead of having to take a nap and medicine before you go to the business conference for fear of what was going to come up? Did I mention that I pastored for 16 years before I became a <laughs> So here's the mandate according to Matthew. As you go, speaks to geography. Make disciples. There's the mandate. This is the command of Matthew's great commission. As you go, make disciples of all nations. And that is cultural baptizing them. Well, you don't baptize them until you lead them to the Lord. So that's evangelism. Teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Well, that's discipleship. And Jesus taught a lot about a lot of things. He talked about money. He talked about relationships. He talked about integrity in a Christian life. He talked about hell. He talked about heaven. He talked about the Word of God. He reiterated the Ten Commandments. There's a lot that Jesus talked about that we need to be covering. So what about Acts 1-8? Historically, your church partners with your association. Do you know what association you're in? Not currently. Do you know what association your church is a member of? If not, ask your pastor. Historically, your church partners with your association to reach your Judea, which would be your community, city, county. Your church partners with Georgia Baptist Mission Board to reach your Judea, which has been identified as the state of Georgia. 
Your church partners with North American Mission Board, Home Mission Board it used to be called, to reach your Samaria, which was identified as North America, specifically United States. And your church partners with the International Mission Board to reach to the ends of the earth. Yes? Y'all are all familiar with this, right? And we have an offering for each one, right? Yes, we do. Associational missions offerings, you probably don't hear much about, but it's in May. State missions is called the Mission Georgia Offering. The emphasis is usually in September. Uh, North American Mission Board Offering is called Annie Armstrong, and the International is called Lottie Moon. And that's all nice and neat and tidy, right? Yes, it is wonderful. I just don't think it's completely accurate. That previous slide represents what we have called for ages a mission-minded church. See, we had to put a word with it to make it an adjective. And I want you to know up front, I am thankful for your church praying and giving to missions. Don't stop. However, it's incomplete. So here's my chart for Acts 1-8. Jerusalem represents people near you who are like you. Judea represents people who are not as near you, but they are still like you. And here's the rub. Samaria represents people who are near you, but they are not like you. They don't like you, and you don't like them. Anybody want to push back on this? Please, 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 please. Anybody? Okay. Just for fun. Just for fun. So, yeah. So I have I have a neighbor who's a Muslim. Yeah. They're not like me. That's right. They're near me. That's right. They're my friend. Yeah. So they're my Jerusalem. I think they're your Samaria. I know you do. So. so I mean, because I mean, they're not like me. So we have conversations. Our children yeah. went to school together. Yeah. They're not like you. You may like each other. I was pushing the point. Yeah. But they are but not they are like not religiously you. Like you. They, they have an entirely different worldview from you. Yeah. Now let me tell you why I came up with this. When Jesus was born, actually, Herod the Great died before he was born. No, 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 no. I beg your pardon. Herod the Great died after it. So when Jesus was born, Judea was all of what we would call the Holy Land. Yes? I saw it. I saw it right before it hit. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump no, no, no. so hard. I did too. That's okay. So when he was born, it was all Judea. Now after he was born and Herod the Great died, they divided it up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Judea was from all the way south, close to the Dead Sea, up way above Galilee. That was all considered Judea. 
And just above Jerusalem, there was this little circle around Samaria. Now, if we say Jerusalem, and by the way, I think the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was getting at here. Where were most of the disciples from? Galilee. 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 So why didn't, if Jesus really meant your hometown, why didn't he say Galilee? I think there's more to it. I think in the book of Acts, we see this outline unfold. Holy Spirit came, day of Pentecost to Jerusalem. Holy Spirit came to Capernaum at the centurion's house. Holy Spirit came to Samaria after Philip preached and revival broke out. And then even beyond that, we see the Holy Spirit coming in Ephesus when uh, Paul encountered the disciples of John the Baptist. So I think that explains those four specific occurrences of the Holy Spirit on a group of people. But also, getting back here, if the disciples were from Galilee, why isn't Galilee mentioned anywhere? In our definition, Samaria is a larger geographical area than Judea, but not in the Bible. And I think when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Peter's okay with that. Judea, Peter's okay with that. And Samaria, Peter's not okay with that. Because no Jew liked the Samaritans and no Samaritan liked the Jews. They were clashing worldviews. And I'm saying you have Samaria in your backyard. And you have Samaria across the street and across town from you. And what is your church doing to reach them? I know where I'm at. I know I'm in South Georgia. And it wouldn't matter if I was in Northeast Georgia, Winder, where I live. This is not just an issue of white and black. Those days of simplicity are gone. We have far more cultural differences than just white and black anymore. Now, anybody? What are you doing to reach your Samaria? Samaria is between Jerusalem and Galilee. And I'm saying that when Jesus said, gave Acts 1-8 to the disciples, they no longer had an excuse to bypass Samaria. But almost many of our churches, I don't want to overstate it, too many of our churches are bypassing Samaria in their own community because they don't like who's there. Or we're scared of them. Don't understand them. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's kind of like we need training to know how to. Yes. Which is why I go back to 
you are like a missionary where you live engaging a new culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes to um, the same thing that you're saying with the missional church and it not being an institution is we have a gentleman in our church that was talking about uh, that they went out and they would do a soup ministry and they would partner with other churches. They were reaching people not like them, you know, their Samaria, and they were pointing them to churches that were not like them but were still Christian churches. So, you know, they go out with an African-American church and they say, hey, this right. is a church that, you know, if you're not going to worship with us, go and worship with them. It's just partner, you know, and it, I still think it shouldn't be that way, but, you know, well, the Martin Luther King that said Sunday morning was the most um, divided segregated. time, segregated time yep. in our country. It, it is. still is. You know, it hasn't changed in 60 years, but it's, you know, how you're reaching. If you're still pointing them to somewhere that's preaching the gospel, like I said, if it's not institutional, because if you're... You know, I tell our church all the time, it's not for First Baptist Woodbine, it's for the gospel of Jesus Christ, right. for the kingdom. So point them to some other church if they don't want to come here, but point them somewhere. And that is a huge step forward that I would love for a lot of us to take. That kind of partnership, in fact, you're fixing to see that word again. So here's the missional formula, I'm almost done. Missional formula that I came up with, I need to be almost done, because I'm two minutes away from time. So I came up with this missional formula, and the reason it doesn't say equal is because that greater sign speaks of synergy. When you put different pieces together, it's greater than the sum of what you have. Under discover opportunities, and I can help you with, with this if you want me to, do demographic study for your community. Do you know who's there? Every time I've done this missional workshops, what I call it with the church, they come in and they say, oh, we know who lives around us. And they do, but they don't. There's always insights that they, they didn't know were there. How are you going under real needs of the community as opposed to perceived needs of the community? What, tell me the number one best way for your church to determine, find out what the real needs of your community are. Number one way. Look around. Number one way. Number one way. Somebody. Your school. Talk to your school. In fact, if you don't do anything else towards being missional, adopt the closest school. I'll give you that story if I have time. Identify resources. Now, so the opportunities are out there. That's in the community. By identify resources, what do you have in your church? How has God gifted, equipped, and resourced your church? And I promise you, you have more than you may think you do. Apply the lenses. These three are always going to be true of missions. Don't do anything missional until you've prayed over it and supported it. But don't stop there. You've also got to be engaged and do it. Go. Engage your options. So this goes back to what you were talking about, partnership. A lot of African Americans are not going to come to your church. So partner with the African American church and let the community see the two pastors working together. Why not? There's too much at stake not to. If you have a Hispanic 
population in your community. Find somebody you can partner with that speaks that language, or Thai, or Korean, or in whatever it is. That's what I mean by partnering. Personnel. That could be a missionary, it could be a church planter. But who's your church supporting? I'm not saying throw away Lottie Moon and Annie to support somebody. I'm saying it, it will help your church develop a kingdom focus if you adopt somebody beyond yourself. Now, let me tell you how easy it is to adopt a church planner. Here's what I've seen. Church planners are young guys, many times, who have a lot of energy. They marry young girls. Young men who marry young girls have young babies. What does every young couple with a young baby need? Babysitters? Help. Help. Specific. Ta give me tangibles. What do they need? Food. Diapers. Formula. Now, you could be the smallest church in southeast Georgia, and you... And you're, you can do this. Your WMU can jump all over this. Once a month, once a quarter, hey, we're going to take up some gift cards for the church planner that we've adopted. How do you know where there's a church planner? Call me. Call me. We also have 15,000 kids in Talk about a mission. Not just an opportunity, but but talk about a mission that your generations could buy into. Yeah. It's that easy. You, you collect the gift cards, you send it to the foster parent or the church planner, and you get your children, if you still have GAs and RAs or Actines or Teen Kid or a one or whatever you do, do something and get them to get their crowns out and write a little note and you put all that in a package and you send it to that church planner and you just blessed his socks off. It, this is not complicated. This is not rocket science. It does require some thought, prayer, and intentional effort. Projects we've already talked about. The wheelchair ramp. Buckets of hope. Um, And I, my mind just went blank. So let me let me tell you my Charleston story. Um, when I first became, when they first gave mission partnerships to me, just like everything else in Southern Baptist Life, we have annual meetings. And so annual meetings, state directors of project uh, mission partnerships met in Charleston, South Carolina. Do y'all understand where I'm at now, right? Historic South Charleston, South Carolina. First Baptist Church, where they have little doors on the pews. You don't sit down unless you open a little swinging door to go in and sit down on a very hard pew in the pulpits, sort of up here, and it's shrouded, and the pastor wears a robe on Sunday. And they got to thinking about what could they do for their community, and they decided they didn't even adopt the school. They adopted third grade at the local elementary school because if you don't pass the test, you don't promote to fourth grade, or at least that was the rule before all of this no child death. My wife's a school teacher. So they adopted third grade because children were struggling and they tutored. It doesn't cost a dime to tutor a student. 
So you had First Baptist, Charleston, white folk, tutoring, students, third grade, regardless of skin color. And the grades started going up. Two years later, a new principal comes in and says, you can't do that, separation of church and state. So the church you sure? And they backed out. After one year, the grades started plummeting. The same principal came back, hey, uh, <laughs> would y'all consider tutoring again? And somewhere along the journey, on a Sunday morning, a young African-American mother with her two children walked down the aisle to join Lily White, First Baptist Charleston. Now the pastor's going to ask the question, glad you're here, but why? Because you cared about my children. And if I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go to a church that cares about my children. Find that niche for your church that'll make a difference in your community. Uh, adopt the football team and feed them supper. If some other churches, most of the people go after athletes, then adopt the band. The band gets overlooked. I was a band junkie. Played trombone and tuba. Adopt the band. Feed the band. And let them ask anything they want to ask. I, I did that in my last pastorate, and one of the band members, I gave them cards, and they, they wrote them down. And one of the band members said, if God is really God, then why does he really need all that worship? You'll, there's no telling what you'll get. Find your niche, discover your opportunities, identify your resources. I did this at an interim church, um, that I, a church, Northeast, small country church I did an interim at, and on Monday night, we, we went through all the demographics, and they identified three target groups. One of them was um, widows, one of them was spiritual orphans. I don't remember what the third group was, but the spiritual orphans were teenagers. They may have had mom and dad at home, but mom and dad didn't go to church because they were drunk, they were alcoholics, whatever. So spiritual orphans, and I, I don't remember what the third group was. That was on Monday night. We wrote them on the big sticky thing on the wall. Tuesday night, we came back and we're, we're trying to identify resources. And they're looking at me like a calf at a new gate. I said, where are we sitting? We're in the fellowship hall. Okay, y'all are some of the best cooks in the county. This is a resource. Oh. Add to the list. What what's behind the fellowship hall? Well, we got a, it's a ball field. It's just a field. It's a ball field. Add it to the list. It might have been young moms, single moms was a third group. Uh, do you have anybody of specific skill in the church? Well, we got the cooks. Okay, add it to the list. We have seamstresses, add it to the list. We have some men who are great mechanics, add it to the list. And then towards the end of Tuesday evening, their list, of, this I mean a small southern gospel only singing country church in northeast Georgia. They had a list of resources and they could pick and choose which group they could meet the needs with. You can do this in your church, but it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen automatically. Any questions? Thoughts, pushback?
Basketball. Basketball. Yeah. We and we feed them breakfast and lunch and no charge and parents come and they stay with them. Yeah. We're actually we, today was the day we started the, day, the second round. Our church is opened up to homeschool. They have an organization where they meet. Well, they're meeting at our church. Yeah. And when they come, we have an opportunity to uh, present the gospel. I've got one young lady told me when she first started coming because they're all different backgrounds and everything else. She was an atheist. But when she got there this morning, she asked the lady from our church, says, where's the preacher? Huh. And this is a lady who wanted nothing to do with religion at all last year where yeah. we're just being who we are. And then something somebody told me, we've never done it. Uh, because the travel for people to come to where we're at is if you're in an area where you've got a lot of Spanish-speaking people, offer English as a second language. Yes. Does it cost you anything? Yes. You've got all the resources in your church already. Use the Bible to teach them how to speak English. And there's probably a breakout. I know there was at Jonesboro. I think Paulette DeHart is here to do a breakout on literacy missions. But I mean, it's a real simple way to it is. reach your community. And then we do a fall festival. It started out as a trunk or treat. Every church likes to do. We call, we went in partnership with the city of Guyton. And last year we were expecting 800 people. We had 1,200. Oh my! This year they're expecting 2,000. Wow! We get to present the gospel with the city partnering with us. Yeah. We can do more than we want to think we can, but we need to be intentional about it. Lord, thank you for a great group and our time together. And I pray you'd help all of us, myself included, to think missionally and to not let it go to the back burner, but to, to press forward for the sake of the kingdom and to be uh, active, engaged, and intentional about seeking to uh, join you in your mission for the redemption of mankind and the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.